Hi, it's a Friday afternoon, and welcome to the Tanakh Talks podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Beasley, and today we're going to be looking at one of the most fascinating stories at the beginning of the Torah, the story of the Garden of Eden. Now, most of us know the basic background of the story. We have man, and then we have woman, and then we have snake, and we have apple, although I really think that it was chocolate because nobody gives up eternal life for an apple, but for chocolate, that's more likely whatever that fruit may have been. The snake is able to convince Eve, Chava, to take a bite. She does the same to Adam. God shows up, starts to engage Adam in conversation. Of course, they pay past, of course they play past the buck. Adam says, she made me do it. She says, the snake made me do it. Fascinating Rashi there. If you read it very carefully, he says, that why is God asking Adam, where are you? Because he's just simply trying to give Adam a chance. Just fess up. If you, and apparently, if you read Rashi carefully, the big meaning is you're not being kicked out of the Garden of Eden for eating from the apple or whatever fruit it was. You're being kicked out of the Garden because you didn't take responsibility for actions. Had Adam admitted what he had done, we may still be in the Garden of Eden today. Separate discussion. Either way, what I want to share with you today, however, is a very different approach to this story. And it's an approach that has started to gain favor recently. I've seen, heard it from Rabbi Samet, Rabbi Yitzhak Shalom, and in Yoni Grossman's new book, he develops it quite extensively, Yoni Grossman's new book. It's a book that's been several years in Hebrew, but in English it's called Creation, the Story of Beginnings, Jonathan Grossman from the Magi Tanakh Companions. So, let's, without further ado, what is the story of the Garden of Eden about? The whole idea that people have of talking snakes is in itself a question, Sforno at the beginning of chapter 3 says, of course, this is not a real story. This is just a metaphor for man's evil inclination. Even Ezra says, and why go to such detail about all the snake's legs and the punishment? He actually does hold that it is a real talking, walking snake. But a larger question is, if I asked to ask you, if I had to ask you, open up the Bible and be, start with the beginning of the story. Where does the story begin? Does it begin with the appearance of the snake? with the appearance of Chava, Eve, where, on what verse do I say, okay, once upon a time, there was a garden? Now, this is a serious question, because understanding where the story begins actually helps us understand its ending. Of course, as we know, the chapters aren't much help. The chapters were, what we call chapters, were the divisions made by the Bishop Stephen Langston in the beginning of the 13th century. They're useful, but as we know, Quite often, the chapters will divide between subjects. Look at the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. Why does Genesis 1 end at the end of the sixth day? Shouldn't creation end with the creation of Shabbat on the seventh day? Is it, isn't the Shabbat, the Sabbath, the culmination of the six days? That in itself is a question that really should be asked. But where does the story of the garden even begin? So let's take a look at the options. Now, in order to discover the beginning of a story, if I don't have a Vaidaber Shemon Shalimor or Vaihiya and God said saying, or after these things, one of the things I look for is structure. And all of a sudden, when I look at this story, I see a lot of themes repeat themselves. The story in chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the earth and the heavens. And it tells me, God created the earth, but there's no field, tree of the field that yet on the earth. Neither did any herb of the field yet grow, because the Lord God had not yet brought rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the soil. So already there's a beginning that says 
Man's job is to work the earth. And all of a sudden there's rain and there's a mist that comes from the ground and God forms man of the dust of the ground and he, repeating the story, or at least either repeating, giving a new version or a expansion of the story of creation of man from chapter one. Yoni Grossman, and I've others have noted this, is that if you look at the two stories, chapter two from here and then chapter three, you see that it's a beautiful chiastic structure. A, B, C, D, C, B, A. A, the earth starts when there's no man to work the soil. There's a garden in the east of Eden, and man is formed the earth and placed beside the tree of life, the Eitzchayim. B, I need to find a woman for him. She gets a name. She is Isha. And they are Aromim, without clothes. C, the beginning of the sin, really the beginning from chapter 3 now. We have the chair, first the serpent, the snake convinces them to eat from the tree, they eat from the tree, he eats from the tree. D, the conversation between man and God, which he places at the center. Comes back to see now punishment in reverse order of sin. Adam sinned last, yet he gets the first punishment. The woman is punished. Actually, the conversation takes place in the reverse order. Man is spoken to first, then woman, and then God speaks to the snake. But the punishments are actually meted out in the order of the sinners. The snake is punished first, woman is punished second, man is punished third. B, again, woman gets another name, this time Chava, reflecting a new dimension of her um, personality, of her, the nature of her existence. She is now going to be a mother. And now no longer are they naked, they are clothed in um, garments of skin. Finally, they are sent away from the tree of life, and they're meant to work, and they, instead of Adam in Gan Eden, we have an angel whose job it is to guard Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam was told to work and to guard the garden. Adam, at the end of the story, is told to work the land, but it's the angels who are Shomer, who will guard the garden from anybody coming in again. And at first glance, it seems like a simple punishment for the sin. But there's one detail here that really should bother us. If working the land is the punishment, why is it foreshadowed way at the beginning of the story? Isn't man just falling into the fate that was destined for him at the beginning? And if he was destined to be working the land, because that's what the Torah said would happen in chapter 2 and verse 5, why is it set up as a punishment? Of course, there are other questions we can ask. What precisely was the effect of this eating of the apple? Or whatever the fruit of knowledge happens to be. Ramban says that somehow knowledge of good and evil become, became intrinsic. It was used to be man would make objective decisions and now they became subjective as opposed to true and false. It became what I like and what I don't like. That's the opinion of Maimonides in the more Nevuchim, the Guide to Perplexed. Ibn Ezra makes a very radical statement. He says, it's the tree of knowledge. When's the next time we see knowledge appear? Very simply. And man knew Chava. What he says here is we have this beginning of sexual awareness, sexual um, cognizance, and that's why all of a sudden they eat the fruit and they become recognizant of the fact that they are naked without clothes, something that was not true beforehand. Now, Rashi, of course, 
disagrees with this subtly at the beginning of next chapter in chapter 4. It doesn't say, and the man knew in Hebrew, Adam. It says, Vadam yada. And Rashi points out, and the man had known, meaning he had already had relations with Chava, with Eve, in the Garden of Eden, as opposed to Ibn Ezra's almost Christian interpretation. And you understand why I say this in a second, that in paradise there is no sexual relations, that sexual knowledge somehow is related to the fall of paradise, or the removal of man from paradise. I'm reminded of the ending of the Narnia series, where you see this little hint of this anti-physical um, attitude towards sexuality, where the oldest of the four siblings, you remember the four, the two brothers and two sisters, I think her name is Susan, she does not make it, she's not saved at the end, because she'd already become at the age where she is now aware of boys, and she's putting on makeup, and this is enough to disqualify her from the final salvation of Narnia, which really reflects at least C.S. Lewis's deep Catholic I don't want to say anti-feminist, but at least anti-human, you know, the sexuality aspect, that part is very strong in Catholic thought. It's reflected in a medrash, which is a very fascinating medrash. Those people in my class have heard this before. There's a medrash in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, what did man do while he was in the Garden of Eden, that on that sixth day, and the midrash says that he stood up, he, man, woman was created, they had relations, and only then was he kicked out. The early Christian fathers, many of whom were Jewish and understood the Midrashic literature and would adapt Midrashim for their own purposes, tell the very same Midrash. We, they, we have it in their books as well, but of course they place the man and woman having relations, not while man and not while Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, but rather outside later, the way Ibn Ezra does. The Ramban tries to say that, well, they did have relations in the Garden of Eden, but it wasn't with knowledge, this is the way animals had it. It wasn't, it wasn't fraught with all the things that animal, that humans go through, you know, in creating a relationship. Either way, the assumption is, is that man does sin. And of course, this becomes the model throughout the Bible. When you sin, you get kicked out. You get removed from your place. The worst punishment that God gives you is to be exiled. You're no longer in the place where you're supposed to be. Man's goal is to find the place where he's supposed to be. And... If you are not in the place you're supposed to be, you have to look at yourself and say, why am I not there? That's a larger theme, but we won't develop it here. What we do want to develop is one very important point. Why? And I'm coming back to the original question. Why does the Torah foreshadow man's working the land? So I want to make a suggestion. I first heard this from Rabbi Samet. It's been developed much more in depth by um, Yoni Grossman in his book. Here's the idea. We take here man and woman at the beginning. They don't have to work for a living. They have really no responsibilities. They are naked. What does this sound like to you? This is childhood. This is what children experience. Children live a life where when that four-year-old neighbor kid shows up without clothes on or is walking around in the underwear, that's cute. When the neighbor is 40, that's more than a little bit of a problem. Because we understand that what we expect of children is much less. But there's a point in time where man has to leave the garden. There's a point in time where man has to mature. Part of the maturity involves sexual awareness. Even if we don't take the anti-physical um, approach of the Ibn Ezra, at least there's an understanding that 
something changes that man and if you look carefully the relationship between man and woman um, is altered there used to be equals as are connecto by the end of the story they're not equals but they are there's a sense of tension you will desire him he will rule over you childbirth is not going to be easy and for man it even gets worse you're going to now work and you're not even going to have a guarantee that your work is going to be successful you now have to work for a living these are the kids who've been thrown out of their parents' house and now have to make it on their own. But don't we all have to do that? Isn't that what every person who matures has gone through that experience? Many of today's thinkers are suggesting, and I'll read Rabbi Grossman's eloquent words on this, that what the story here is not doing is telling us about man and woman and this sin, but rather man, humanity's process of maturity and what it means to be a functioning adult on the world that God created. The fact that man is working is not a punishment. It is a reflection of how the world was meant to be. We are meant to grow up. Of course, that's always fraught with tension. Teenagers and parents, there's a point in time as a teenager develops his own identity, there's always going to be tension with the parents. That's expected. If there isn't, it's almost unhealthy. But we want to see that person on their own, on their own two feet, independent. And that's where man is at the end of the story. I'll conclude with Rabbi Grossman's words. In this narrative, maturity is presented as a very painful process. Knowledge comes at a heavy price, shattering the world's child's world of blissful ignorance. The rebellious teenager leads himself into a world tainted with sin, burdened with toil, but the ground is waiting for him, waiting for him to break the crust of the soil and tease out his fruits. In this way, the Garden of Eden plays a dual role in the narrative. It is a physical site, the source of four mighty rivers and the setting of humanity's first drama, but it also functions as a symbolic site. Every person has to pass through it over the course of his or her development. With these thoughts in mind, I want to wish everybody a Shabbat Shalom, and we'll be back next week with several podcasts as we get back to regular programming.